Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the talkie bit. Just an FYI, um, <clears throat> this particular talkie bit is front-loaded with ideas. <laughs> it's a bit heady. <clears throat> and um, I want to do something today that I don't do very often, which is explore something from quite, quite directly within the Judeo-Christian tradition. I feel like that's, that tradition is sort of often humming around the edges, idea-wise, of the things that we explore together because it's a tradition that, for good and for ill and for everything in between, most of us in this community have something in common around that. It's been, um, it's been a shared big idea or belief paradigm that most of us have encountered. But to actually kind of go, we're going in there, we're going into a text, we're going into you know, some of those kind of things, not something we typically do. And we are going to do a little bit of that this morning. That is pretty nearly impossible to do without running into the fact that the beliefs within the various iterations of that tradition all reference the sacred texts of the tradition, but with wildly different takes on what the texts represent or mean or how one should or might choose to engage with them. And so to oversimplify in the interest of illustrating that challenge, we might think about it this way. People within that tradition might take their sacred texts absolutely literally. As in, if it says seven days, it means seven times 24 hours. If it, if it says the snake talked, the snake talked. If it says that men rule women, that means men rule women. Like whatever the literal, most literal sort of approach to the text is, that's the way we're going to take it. So if we think about this as a continuum of possibilities, let's put that on one end. All right? And then if we kind of go along that continuum, a little past center perhaps, a little closer to the other end, we might find folks who look at the collection called the Bible as a library of ancient stories. It comes from a variety of cultural settings. The stories are important. They offer some potentially helpful guidelines, but those are surrounded by quite a few curious superstitions and also some truly weird folk tales. <laughs> and so there's, there's that kind of perspective as well, right? And then if we keep kind of going down the continuum, if you will, to the maybe the far other end or closer to that, we might find some folks whose experience with this collection of texts has, is that it's a, as a collection, it's been leveraged in ways that have been deeply harmful, that have been destructive even. And for people who've had those experiences, any perspective that suggests otherwise can actually be really difficult to entertain at all. And then all the messy middle, right, in which I think probably many of us live, which is a space in which I would say we tend to be what I would call intriguingly selective, <laughs> about what we're going to go, that idea, that's, that's still true, <laughs> or something, still has some force. That one, not so much. And, and uh, partly what I want to explore today is the way in which history suggests that that messy middle is actually where the action is, generally speaking. In a space like the table, which exists to do whatever we can think of to do to make a safer space for exploring what we believe... I want to approach the text that I'm going to reference with that reality that I just described very much in view, which is why I wanted to take a moment with it. 
And in the final event, if I was really going to cut to the chase, save you all a bunch of time, I'm going to suggest that it's possible to see the evolution of some people's understandings of the divine, their understandings of what we would use God language for, spirit language for, that it's possible to see the evolution of some people's understandings of that happening within the context of that collection of texts. That in that collection, we can actually see this thing happening that in many ways we are doing as a collective, as a community. I'm not going to make any particular meaning of that vis-a-vis how to regard the texts. Just some, more just to say, if we look in there with this lens, we can see this. Now, having said that, I, I would also want to say that if any reference at all to the Bible makes you feel categorically unsafe, then uh, even with all of that in mind, then this one, this one might not be. It might not be for you. It might not feel good. Uh, it might be a problem. I, I just want to put all those things out there as possibilities and and add to that this. My hope would be that we can all listen and decide for ourselves. But I know that that might not be the case for everyone. And so I want to I fully affirm and support that as much as I'm able to without that experience being the strongest feature of my personal experience. Because it isn't for me. I, I feel adjacent to that in many ways. And I also know that one of the reasons I haven't had those destructive experiences in the same, to the same degree is in no small part due to the fact that I'm a white man living at a time and in a place that was colonized by white men. So there's other things that would impact my personal privilege, but that's a, that's, those are features, and I know that that's the case. So I want to acknowledge that as well. With all of that in mind, let me ask a question. Do you ever wonder, it doesn't have to be in these words, but do you ever wonder whether there seems to be a correlation between incredibly difficult circumstances and religious or spiritual evolution. I want to get some nerdy stuff out of the way about the language here. I want to clarify the terms just a little bit. I'm going to do it backwards compared to the sentence that I just said. So when I'm talking about religious or spiritual evolution, I'm generally talking about something getting better or at the very least getting more complex or more nuanced. Um, That might seem a bit optimistic, but it's where I'm coming from. Uh, think human evolution or think evolution of some other living species, right? That's, so that's sort of the evolution idea that I have in mind when I use that term. Maybe we could think of it as moving from less complex toward more complex, from less self-aware toward more self-aware. Uh, we could say maybe it's moving from more brutal to less brutal or to use more positive language, from less humane to more humane, from less kind to more kind. Those are the sorts of trends that I'm thinking of when I talk or think about something evolving. Now, I want to be very careful here. I feel like I'm treading dangerously close to the brink of my competencies. Uh, We should also touch briefly on the difference between correlation and causation. Uh, Just my use of those terms might be giving some of you an unpleasant moment right now, feeling a little bit like you just tripped and landed in Algebra 1 or your freshman stats class or something. Uh, If that's you, I apologize for the trigger. But I wanted to stop here because it's easy to go astray with the language uh, here. We encounter people getting this wrong in the interest of making their point all the time. And it's going to be an important aspect of what I'm exploring a little bit later, so I want to clear it up right off the hop. Causation always implies correlation. But correlation does not imply causation. So let me unpack that a little bit. Correlation, just that language just simply implies a relationship between variables, as in these two factors have something 
to do with one another. So that's a correlation. All right? This has something to do with that. But that doesn't mean that correlation exists due to a direct or causal link between those factors. So in other words, in correlation, this variable has something to do with that variable, is true. In causation, when one factor changes, it causes the other one to change. There's a direct link, and it's causal. So with that in mind a little bit, let me ask the question again. Do you ever wonder whether there seems to be a correlation between incredibly difficult circumstances and religious or spiritual evolution? Not, do you ever wonder if difficult circumstances always cause religious or spiritual evolution? Does that unpack that a little bit? Okay. Because it, in the second instance, that would be causation. And in this conversation, that's a bridge too far. Like that, That's just not where I want to go. Having said that, I think there is something to the idea that if we look back at the history of how beliefs evolve over time, one of the recurring factors, this has something to do with that, seems to be difficult circumstances. That might seem like a lot of backgrounding, but it felt important to me this morning because it's a little too easy to go A, B, and, and kind of just get binary about this way of thinking. And I don't, I don't believe that's defensible, and I also don't necessarily believe it's helpful. But the correlative idea, I think, is. All right, so just a quick pause. I want to I just head off the notion that the reason for suffering is so we'll learn something or change something. <laughs> because if we go down that path, that's taking us in the direction of causation, right? We're suffering so that. And it also takes us in the direction of the idea that there's some power greater than us that might ultimately be the cause of the suffering, making us suffer so we can learn a lesson. <laughs> Hannah and I, the, the priest upstairs, we always have a little morning conversation whenever there's time, just because I think we, we, we discovered that our brains work a little bit the same. And that's kind of intriguing to us. So this morning we were talking about, how to, I don't remember how we got onto it, but we were talking about how our parents spoke to us about smoking. Turns out there was at least an, an overlapping instance where one of our parents said to us at some point, you want to try smoking? No problem, I'll get you a whole pack. And we're going out on the back step and you're smoking them all. <laughs> uh, causing suffering so that you'll learn a lesson. <laughs> anyway, in neither instance is that the path that we ended up taking, but it was there. If you are somebody who thinks that of the divine, of God, of spirit, of the greater power, whatever, however you imagine that, as causal in this, as a being that causes us to suffer so that we will learn a lesson, and that's why we suffer, I want to both respect the fact that you hold that belief, and also I don't want to be disingenuous about my take on that. I personally find that belief uh, deeply problematic. I've experienced it as the underpinnings of notions about God and authority that do more harm than good, and, uh, and not a belief that I wish or find myself able to hold. So while I wish to be respectful of that other position, I can't find myself able to hold it, and I want you to know that too as I go through this, because that's part of my lens on all of this. Now, maybe... One of the reasons why suffering and the evolution of beliefs often seem to occur together is because suffering is always part of our human experience. So maybe the whole conversation is kind of moot. It's like, well, of course suffering and evolution go together because suffering's always there. It's like human gravity. So how silly. Of course suffering and evolution go together. If anything evolves, there's going to be suffering right there beside it, right? Not quite what I'm talking about. But even if we accept that idea, that doesn't necessarily make it easier to suffer, does it? 
uh, somebody tells you about some suffering in your life and your reply is, well, we all suffer, that's going to be super-duper comforting, isn't it? It may not be wrong. It also may not be helpful. So that's, that, that's part of it, isn't it? But even if we accept this notion that, <clears throat> that suffering is part of a human experience, that doesn't make it easier to suffer, and it doesn't necessarily make causing suffering or not standing up in the su- space of suffering okay. Those things don't fit together like that. It also, acknowledging that suffering is common, also doesn't negate the idea that one of the good things that may sometimes come from suffering is the evolution of what we believe. Good things can come from suffering. Beautiful things can come from suffering. Also, terrible, horrific, truly awful things can come from suffering. This is not a Pollyanna-ish idea, if you will. You might be familiar with the idiom, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There are ways in which that thought might apply to our experience of evolving what we believe. And what I mean by that is that if our beliefs are working, it's less effort to leave them alone than it is to wade into reconsidering them, right? It's like, yeah, it ain't broke. And I think this is one of the things about the table and why we exist that actually sometimes turns people off, that actually confounds people or confuses them or makes them go not interested. If our beliefs are working for us, why would we want to disrupt them with exploration? I mean, that's... That's bordering on religious masochism, isn't it? Why would you do that? So instead of looking for a community that's committed to exploring, we look for one that aligns with what's already working for us, and we stay there. That kind of makes sense, right? I would say unless our preferred space, by personality, by maybe by present tense experience, is one of exploring, in which case the table might be very much our kind of community. And often, if we're in exploring mode, not always, because I feel like my dad was in exploring mode his whole life by virtue of personality, but I think often if we're in exploring mode about our beliefs, it means that something has already disrupted our previous belief system. And that something, whatever that is, as we experience it, is often some kind of suffering not least of all the suffering then we experience when the story by which we've been making sense of the world stops working for us. I, I can't speak to everyone's experience. I don't think this is universal, but I think there's a theme here. When our story stops working for us, I think more often than not, it doesn't stop working for us like the light's going out. It's not an on-switch, off-switch experience. It's incremental. It's contextual. It takes place over time. It functions. It includes things like grief, which goodness knows is messy and not linear, right? All of those things are kind of stirred in there. All that might be ways to just sort of consider these questions from a personal or individual perspective. Now, I want to broaden that a little bit. Sometimes that experience of a belief system stopping working seems to have a greater collective impact or kind of reach some sort of a critical cultural mass. When many people are suffering in a shared or a collective way, it can seem like the disruption to the belief system of that collective can sort of coalesce. And when that happens we sometimes get what history might reveal as an, what we might call an axial shift. And there's more than one way to understand that term, but 
but the way that I'm thinking of it is that an axial shift is how sometimes it seems like a culture arrives at a new set of coordinates or a new set of guiding ideas or stories that shape the conversation about what things mean or how we make meaning of our experiences. For something to behave as an axial shift, the reference points for how we think about what things mean needs to change. That's what constitutes an axial shift. So for instance, and it's, it's, um, I'm going to say that it's really too soon to be sure about this from an historic point of view, but this feels like reasonable speculation. I think that history may, may well reveal that the experience of a global pandemic will change our collective paradigm about what the impact of a new virus can be in the 21st century. That, that could represent an axial shift. I think one of the reasons we're having such a gigantic conversation about anxiety right now is in part about that shared experience. So that could lead, I think quite readily, to widespread changes in people's perspective about things like confidence about the future or the way we parse who's trustworthy and who isn't. And if so, if history reveals that that is in fact a shift that happened and didn't shift back, that would be an example of an axial shift. These happen in every sphere of life, including the spheres of religious or spiritual beliefs. Now, even just given the example I just used, it's not that difficult to see that an axial shift, when it's collective, is big, right? And big things are, generally speaking, better perceived or more thoroughly perceived or at least differently perceived from a distance. Think about the enormous impact of those first pictures of Earth from space on our collective understanding of what it means to be on this spinning ball. Right? Ooh, that's a really small dot in a really big chunk of not much, right? So when we back away from things like axial shifts, we can kind of go, oh, oh, there we go. There are the edges or something more like the edges of that shift. So because axial shifts are big and better seen at a distance, I want to consider one that happened a long time ago. One of the extraordinary axial shifts in history occurred when a large number of Judeans were forced into Babylonian exile, and this happened between 597 and 538 BCE. We have a pretty good record about that, about that happening. And if we dig into the stories that we have from that exile, one of the things that we can see happening for that group of people, the exiled people, in the midst of their displacement and suffering was that their idea about home shifted, their idea about Jerusalem shifted. And it changed from just being about a geographic location. It was still about a geographic location. If you go, just go visit the Temple Mount these days, you know, and you'll, you'll see what I mean, right? It's still about a thing that's there physically. But during this shift, it also turned into an idea. Jerusalem turned into an identity. And as we can see in the news every night, that's still powerful. It would still be powerful if the city was leveled, physically speaking. That's the kind of stuff that fuels fires both ideological and literal. Very powerful stuff. And at the moment, this contemporary moment, we can also see that shift combined with another ancient idea, which is the idea of an eye for an eye. That idea in written form is first found on a stone that's known as Hammurabi's Code, uh, which is arguably the most perfect early iteration of codified laws for a people group. There are older ones, but that's the oldest complete one. That code, Hammurabi's code, was 
Babylonian. It was a product of the same people group that were oppressing the Judean exiles. But, and this is where we get into the evolution part, interesting plot twist, that idea of an eye for an eye as law code for people shows up in the Hebrew book of Lamentations. Put there by Judean authors during the Babylonian exile. What? So, the Judeans are suffering in exile, and while they're in exile, they adopt some of their Babylonian oppressors' legal ideas about justice. In particular, this idea that justice is comprised of an eye for an eye, and 4,000 years later, we're watching that same idea being enacted on a daily basis. That sounds like a lousy illustration about the positive evolution of beliefs, doesn't it? But we could stop right there, and we could consider that one possible wider lesson here is that we should be careful of what sort of ideas we take on board and treat as static, because both as individuals and as collectives, the ideas that we hold take different shapes over time. So if an idea like an eye for an eye is still as ineffectual now as it's ever been, and arguably even more devastating when it gets amplified by contemporary weaponry and technology, maybe it wasn't a great idea in the first place. We're not going to stop there. But it illustrates a certain kind of thinking. So I'm going to keep going because I think there's an interesting adjacent story here that contains some other more hopeful possibilities. So this exploration takes us all the way back in this collection of Judeo-Christian texts to a, a part of those texts that's typically labeled uh, in the Christian collection, Genesis 1. All right? Now, most modern biblical scholars would regard Genesis 1, and if you read it, you kind of go, why are there two different narratives in this one short little chunk? Most modern biblical scholars would regard that collection of stories as being compiled by a scribe or a group of scribes. They're usually just called P, the letter P, there's, there's reasons for that that are interesting, but that I'm not going to get into. That editing happened somewhere around the 4th century BCE. So if you're not used to counting backwards, you know, like if you don't spend a lot of time BCE, <clears throat> that's during the Babylonian exile. All right? Now, the stories that the Judean editors were working with and revising for the first chapter of Genesis were way older than that. So if they're working in the 4th century, the stories, the narratives that they're actually working with and editing are about 1,000 years older than that. All right? And this is where we get to the evolution of beliefs part. Those stories were altered considerably in the editing and in ways that are quite surprising. So the older creation myths that the editors that P was working with came from the people with Mesopotamian origins, the Babylonians and also the early Hebrews. They shared the same kind of cultural underpinnings. And those creation stories, because that's what Genesis 1 is, the best known of which uh, features a god named Marduk, and when Marduk creates the world in those old stories, he does it by slaying a dragon named Tiamat. And that is, if you've ever read that story, uh, anybody ever read that story, by the way? Just out of curiosity? Okay, a couple people. Yeah, no, I, I'm not, it wasn't a test. Um, I was just intrigued because it's graphically, egregiously violent, like a lot of Greek mythology is. I'm chopped up and scattered around in bloody bits, kind of violent, right? The core of it, though, is that as, an, as a mythology... The, 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 the core belief in it is that in order for creation to happen, there had to be a blood struggle. That's the central idea. That idea, hardly surprising, given that the Hebrew people and the Babylonian people shared Mesopotamian roots, 
That same idea that a blood struggle is necessary for creation to happen, that also shows up in the Hebrew myths that follow that myth. I'm going to read you a little excerpt. This is from Psalm 74, which is attributed to Asaph. Timeline for Asaph's Psalms is like 1000 to 962 BC. So about 500 years before the editors assemble what we now read in Genesis 1. Right? So just to get, get that on the timeline somewhere. So listen to this. So this is the, the, the poet here is speaking to the divine, talking to God. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. This day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. And so... The necessity for a blood struggle, in this case, the, the Hebrew god Yahweh slaying Leviathan, is a prerequisite for creation. And it's like super present in that old Hebrew story, right? As one might expect. But intriguingly, there is no such theme in Genesis 1. This document produced by P, by this editor or editors, during the Babylonian exile. That's backwards, it feels, doesn't it? Karen Armstrong, in her her book, The Great Transformation, says it this way. She just says, P methodically extracted aggression from the traditional cosmogony. The editors just deliberately took the necessity for blood struggle as a prerequisite for creation out of the narrative. They said, we don't believe that anymore. It's not going in the story. She goes on to say this. This was a remarkable achievement. The deportees had been the victims of horrifying assault. The Babylonians had devastated their homeland, reduced their city to rubble, raised their temple to the ground, and forcibly driven them into exile. And then a little later, she says it this way. She's speaking here about P, about the editors. Even though the exiles had experienced such violent uprooting, this, the world of Genesis 1, this was a world where everything had its place. On the last day of creation, God, quote, saw everything that he had made, and here it was exceedingly good, close quote. He also blessed all that he had made, and that presumably included the Babylonians. What? (laughs) What is up with that? Well, that's that's an expanding question, and I'm not going to take it on at the moment, but Let me wrap this up by offering a couple of ideas for us to just think about out of this. One is that the experience of suffering can sometimes help us see the problems with the ideas that got us here. Here's Einstein, who's typically credited with this saying that has something, or it's a paraphrase, but something about the idea that the thinking that got us here is not going to get us out of here. That's a big paraphrase, but that that notion, right? So the experience of suffering can sometimes help us go, oh, right. (laughs) <laughs> keep doing the same thing again and expect different results, that's the addiction recovery definition of insanity, right? So if, for example, the story by which we explain the world coming into being requires bloodshed and violence, as those earlier Mesopotamian grounded myths did, and then we as a collective people experience the downside of that ideology when it's exercised against us, it might provoke a reconsideration, an evolution of that core idea itself. Oh, if that's what it looks like 
to make meaning of the world this way when that meaning-making system has us as the underdogs? Not so much. I, I once had somebody tell me the story about how they and their family had been deeply hurt by the leadership of a religious community that this family had long loved and served and the, the, the leaders of that community defended their actions based on some biblical story or other. And as this person told me the story, I, I just at the end, I just said, listen, if the story that's being referenced is what's causing the suffering, if that's the, if that's the pivot this turns on, then maybe there's something wrong with the story. We haven't talked about that idea since. <laughs> that might have been a little bit like saying, everybody suffers. <laughs> Not the most empathetic response I could have given. But another way to think about that is to think about it this way. If the story of an eye for an eye continues to exacerbate the suffering of the innocent, there might be something about that story that needs to be reconsidered, that needs to evolve. Maybe that's not a great concept of justice. In the context of this exploration, I think one of the most remarkable features of Genesis 1 is that it explains how everything came into existence, and it does that in a mythological shape, but it does it with no bloodshed, no aggression required. All of this goodness, all of this beauty, all of the life that we see around us and experience is set into motion in Genesis 1, vibrating with life by sound, by speech, by something that any quantum physicist would recognize in an instant, by vibration. And I would say that in context, that was a huge step forward. And that this evolution was articulated in the context of such displacement, oppression, and suffering is, I would say at the very least, interesting and perhaps even hopeful because perhaps if those stories could evolve under those circumstances, then maybe the dysfunctional ones that we hold today could as well. I think it also offers a glimpse of the possibility of holding more than one point of view at the same time. Because for the Hebrew people, this new creation story, as, it, as we ha- have it now in Genesis 1, this story without bloodshed and religious, a religious framework arising from that, included their collective worship, which would have included chanting the Psalms, including Asaph's song that I read, which in- contains the older mythology of Yahweh cracking the Leviathan's head so things could come to life. So there was, there was a both and in their practice. There was a way of looking backwards and acknowledging what is running in the history of a system belief while also saying yes and to the positive evolution of what is held to be or experienced as believable at present. Their way of holding belief did not require the eradication of their own history. That's important. It also didn't include the necessity of affirming all aspects of that same history. Acknowledgement is not the same thing as agreement, folks. (laughs) At the risk of saying something obvious that's easy for me to forget, right? Otherwise, how on earth could we support anybody? How on earth could we relate with, be, be alongside in community with anybody whose beliefs are not like ours? We couldn't. They would just be an enemy. They would need to be eradicated, wouldn't they? So that's a fascinating part of this story as well. 
And I think, and I won't, I won't go into this at all today, but we could see a project like decolonization through that same lens, right? Yes, and. Yes, this needs to change. And that's not going to happen, I would argue, effectively, if we think that means wiping out what has gone before. No. So more than one perspective on these things while we're evolving them. It's a complicated idea. Now, we might look at the poetry, at the mythology of Genesis 1, and we might see it as reflecting an understanding of how this earth, our galaxy, the universe came into being that has a lot of information missing. <laughs> if they knew now, what we, if they knew then what we know now, you know, what would, the, what would the story be like? We might regard that story from our present perspective as primitive, arcane, dependent on magical thinking, maybe even just flat-out nonsensical. But here's where I think we might want to turn and examine ourselves by similar criteria, examine our beliefs by similar criteria. And I would say that this is an exercise that depends heavily on imagination because it requires us to speculate about what is still to come, something over which we have no ultimate control. We have agency, but it's not control is a different word to me than agency. We, we can't guarantee how things are going to go. So here's some questions. What ideas might I, might we hold today that history will reveal to be outmoded, incomplete, dangerous. What are some ideas that we might hold today that we believe might retain their beauty, their sense of wonder, mystery, hope in the future? What ideas do we hold that feel like they have something about them? And it can be a very... Hard to define something, but something about them that makes us feel as though, you know what, that one might actually, that one might actually evolve into better. Which ideas do I hold, do you hold, do we hold together if we hold any together? Which ones might provide guidance and also be open to evolution and change? And the other side of that same coin might be a question like, what ideas do I hold that seem to require static belief in order to function? Which, which idea, what ideas do I hold that behave in ways that are rigid and resistant to evolution and change? And how might asking ourselves these sorts of questions help us to hold our own beliefs with more kindness, more humility, more curiosity, and in such a way that we want to continue to explore slash evolve what we believe. That's where I'm going to leave it. And uh, we can go out there and thrash about and, uh, and see what we come up with and perhaps have a conversation about all of that another time. <laughs>